Well, I, I did threaten you. The joy of having you here when you don't have a new book to plug is that we can talk about at okay. once all the books and all of Anne. Okay. But I did warn you in advance, what I really want to talk about with you is mothers. And then my brain froze. Perfectly. I know. And it hasn't gone And it's just gone into a kind of mother-bound paralysis. Like, well, oh my God, what can I say? Okay, let's step aside from the novel. We novels. all have one. We all have a mother, but we all have an inner critic. And I sometimes think actually it's not an inner critic, it's an inner mother. With you, is your inner critic your inner mother? I also have an outer mother. <laughs> Okay, open that up for me. <laughs> well, I mean, my mother is 90 um, and uh, is much tended and loved in Dublin. And uh, so, yeah, so there are many mothers. There are many, you know, there are is fantasy your mother a, mothers. Is your mother a matriarch? Is your mother they're a matriarch? They're also changing mothers. Okay. Uh, because people ask me about families a lot as though I were an expert, and I'm really not an expert. And uh, also the Enrights are, are quite a... a um, a together sort of family. So I write all of these things, the ghastly things happening and people hating each other, really. Um, and yet the Enrights seem to survive and thrive one way or other. And, so you're and saying the Enrights are nothing like the Madigans? The Enrights are... Or the Considines or... Well, one woman said to me once, my family is all... All my family is in, in your book, The Gathering. There are 12 in The Gathering. She said, there's only four of us and we're all in your book. So... <laughs> so... The Enrights are like the Madigans insofar as all families are like the Madigans. Um, and, and readers come in two varieties, or they used to come in two varieties. One would be the kind of slightly posh reader who would say, oh, <laughs> nothing like us. <laughs> How interesting to have this quite degraded view of life and family. And the other reader who says, that's us, that's us, that's us. You've said something. Caustic, I suppose, but also true. Is this specifically, though, to do with the size of the families? Because the, the to, an English, to yeah. an English reader, you know, when you read about a family in the 20th century with you know, more than four children, that's immediately saying, you know, there's something profligate, they're probably Catholic, they're probably a bit, you know, Yeah, I mean, there are many wild. reasons for people to have large families, and there were enthusiastic large families among rich people and Protestants. Um, <laughs> I love the curl of the lip with which you said that. I, I, I know a, a, a Protestant who has a 10 siblings um, in Ireland, and that's because they could afford them, and clearly they liked it all, and they liked doing it, and they liked getting what they got. And You're allowed liked, to say, you, know, you are, I got dispensation, you are allowed to say <laughs> sex in here. Well, clearly there were various levels of enthusiasm involved. <laughs> and in that family, three nannies. But there were other families where the enthusiasm seemed... I mean, there were, when I was growing up, or, or when I was in my early 20s, there were late-night conversations where people would say, I have no idea what they thought they were doing. <laughs> what went on? They had no idea how there were so many of them. And I did know some families, not many, of uh, uh, 13, uh, 8, and then our own family was 5, which is considered moderate, Four was a little bit. And then the women of my mother's generation, if a woman only had two children, I actually heard them say, he only gave her two. <laughs> that this was of a, of a style of meanness. Keeping the... F <laughs> and, and the meanness might be... Almost implying that it only happened twice. It. No, I can only... tell you're not like Nina Stibby. We're not going to say any rude words here, are we? What? No. Sorry, freeze. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, I saw you. Your mother in isn't listening. No, that's all fine. She's yeah. she's actually wouldn't mind. Yeah. Okay. God is listening, but he doesn't mind. Either. No, that's all fine too. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was talking to Nina yesterday off stage about how um, the nightmare of being a novelist is that yeah, everyone thinks you will you will have all the sex you ever describe, but the other thing is that your mother, as long as she's alive, will think she is every mother you ever write. Does, does your mother? Did your mother? Does your mother have that trouble with your books? Does she assume that she's all the mothers? The, the, it's quite interesting when people think they are or are not in your book. Okay, so is it Somerset moms who said put them in so long as you make them gorgeous? You, you know, that's that's a rule. <laughs> that old trick. That old trick. <laughs> and Nina was talking about that very effectively. I met a woman in, in a shop one day, and she was called. Let's call her Maury, Maura Kelly. And I had a Maureen Kelly in my book. Okay. She said, you took my name. <laughs> and I thought, Maureen. She said, I was christened 
Maureen. <laughs> so not only had I, and, and then she said, and then you got the prize. <laughs> not only had I taken her name, but I had taken her secret and essential name. Uh-huh. And I had stolen it in order to enrich myself in a slightly fantastical scenario. So when students, if I teach creative writing, say, what do you do about putting people in your book? You say, people are mad, right? And you can't do anything about their madness. And they will see themselves in your book, whether they're there or not. My mother is not of that variety of madness. And neither, thank God, are my siblings. But... My brother gets a bit, he's quite literal-minded, and he says things like, that's that table we had. Brothers do that, I I get this. And and it's not, you know, any emotional connecting sort of thing. It's the the table, it's that table, that Formica table in the summer place with the steel aluminium rim, and and he gets snagged on those material details. No, but those, as Joanna Trollope was saying yesterday, so so often it's those material details that unlock the emotional story. And we were all waxing lyrical about the curtains over the way in Trehaverick House, because several of us recognised the fabric from our childhoods. There's one particular pair of curtains in the scullery, and Nina cried when she saw it, and so did I. Um, So don't knock the brothers and their tables, but you're avoiding talking about your mother again already. I am already. Okay, so when (laughs) I, I wrote my first book, which is called The Portable Virgin, which is short stories. Which is short stories, but it's called The Portable Virgin, okay? And it's a long time ago. It was 30 years ago, and I was young. My mother was also relatively young. And she phoned me up, and, uh, and it was almost like she had it written down on a piece of paper. She said, when Edna O'Brien wrote her books, people said, uh, were shocked because they saw things that hadn't been written down before, and that is what you are doing here. And it was like, oh, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> But a, quite a formal um, and, uh, you know, quite moving, uh, a, a, you know, um, what do you call that? A, 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 a laissez-passer, you know, or, or, or not quite encouragement, but saying, we understand and we're not going to get too upset. I mean, then there were some details. I don't do blasphemy, you might have noticed or you might not have noticed. No, I noticed, really, I noticed. She really does, does get upset about blasphemy. So there are things that I don't write about and, and I'm quite an, can be iconoclastic and can be kind of very overly truth-seeking, you know, in my work. Who needs that amount of truth? Who needs that amount of truth? Too much truth. Or so, but you burrow down into the bottomless subject, which is the family. Yes, that's um, one of the. Things. And any, I mean, I think it's a little disingenuous to say, oh well, you know, they're too intelligent to identify. Surely everyone who reads fiction is is empathising. That is to read fiction. Okay. So if your in- own family read your books, they must respond occasionally and say, "Ow, that's a bit close." To, no, not really. really. I was in Port Isaac having a cup of tea earlier this afternoon. Mm-hmm. They're two beautiful twins. They're about 18 months old. They were walking but not talking. And their parents were trying to put pairs of reins on them. And there, was, there were two elder, next generation, either mother and mother-in-law of the, of, of the, of the mother. So the reins were going on. The kids were grand. They were very sturdy little items. And the mother or mother-in-law said to the mother, oh, it said nothing to them, it said to the child, your mother's strangling you, she said. <laughs> so I went home happy. All right, here I am, happy. Your mother is strangling you, she said to the 18-month. And it was an entirely benign situation. And the reins were sort of not going on right. And I thought, oh, I hope that's her mother, not her mother-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> but how much more do you need? Mm. Yes. How much more do you need than this accusation of murderousness? <laughs> Said to a toddler, not even to the, the mother. You know, they used to do it to me. Oh, is you, has, has your mother put you down on that dirty old drug? <laughs> they might say. And you go, <laughs> But how much is there in that one comment about mm. murderousness, for example? And, and connection and, and how astonishing the connections are. And I think this relates directly to the structure, the narrative structure that you seem to have settled on. Well, no one ever settles, no novelist settles, but your most recent two, The Gathering and The Green Road, both use a structure which fillets the different layers of revelation within a family by 
Rather than telling a single narrative, you present us with parcels of narrative. Okay, my, one thing my brother, the same brother who has tr trouble with the table, <laughs> said... The literal brother. The literal-minded okay. brother, he, he's a mathematician, and he said, there is one thing that's true, and that is no one remembers things the same way. Mm. And that is... Well, no siblings know, ever remember yeah. things the same but the, way. The difference between the families in the gathering and the Green Road and families that I know and love, including my own, is that families can change, and it is the unchanging families that are the less healthy ones. So these, these families are both stuck in some moment of slight pathology, one way or the other, with un, unshriven sins. But don't you find as well that those unchanging families, the families that don't want to change, or don't accept change. It's down to their own narrative. They have a very unhealthy, fixed narrative. This is how we are. Totally. Um, and it's in the, in the Green Road, it's totally the mother that the, the, the children are just characters in her inner drama. Mm. And it all is somehow... It's her mind. It's like one of those Pollock's toy theatres and the children are... Yes. Um, and they're uh, somehow labelled and Dan, whatever he does, is wonderful. Although he's never there. And the one who's there is of no interest. Were you the favourite? Or was no. the daughter never the favourite? Actually, it was quite a matriarchal house and the daughters did well by mm -hmm. that as in, in our, in our uh, uh, upbringing. But, but not you? No, no, not me, no. I was do, the youngest. Do you think that's why you became the writer? Yeah, well, the I remember I, I, years ago, and I, I've never found the quotation right again, that, that every family... That, that the luxury in a family, our gentleman's family always has an artist. I think that was what it was said. That it was a luxury that a family could afford one maverick. Mm -hmm. And the rest of them were all, you know, studying engineering, basically. Well, in Protestant the families, the maverick is, was always the one that went into the church. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah. yes. No, so uh, I was Because that was a safe, that was a sort of safe haven. Yeah. But no, I have these very respectable, very compliant, quite conservative siblings. And then there's me. Okay. Mm. Yeah, yeah I, I have common ground there. It's the, young, the, <laughs> the slightly overlooked younger one tends to be the one that, that takes notes and remembers things. Are you the family... Makes noise. But are you the family story keeper? No. So when there's... Is, it's one of the other siblings, the one yes, who says, that's sister. not right, this my is how it sister. happened. My elder sister. Oh, no, she's oh. in charge of everything. <laughs> no, I've never... I'm, I am I'm the youngest, and therefore everything I say is in, inaccurate. Because you exaggerate. Because you, I, yeah. clearly I exaggerate and make it up. <laughs> and, and I have to get it wrong because, you know, one of them was 12 when I was six, so they remember it better. Um, so, no, I'm not allowed any communal memories whatsoever. So I claw that back every Christmas, you know. So for those <laughs> in the room who haven't read it, I think it's time we met one of your mothers. Can we, can we have the mother from the gathering first? Maybe? Oh, yeah, well, okay. Uh, Do you want my specs? No, no. I have yeah, glasses. She it's tried so hard to subvert this. First of all, she forgot all her books, left them in Ireland. No, I didn't. I just don't like the air miles. I just, uh, I feel bad enough about writing them without dragging them up to New Zealand, as it were. Um, and <laughs> Cornwall's not that far. I know where remote. I know, I know. It's actually quite adjacent. Oh, God, you're now going to see all the bits I folded down the fingers. Well, no, this is, um, I met a woman in Belfast. I did meet a woman in Belfast when I was 18, 18 years ago. She's called Dolores, and I do love asking people about their names, and Dolores, of course, means sorrow. And I said, why are you called Dolores? And she said, I'm the last of 21. <gasps> and then she went through what had happened to all of them. Um, and they, they were a working-class Belfast family, and some of them had died in the Troubles, and some of them had died otherwise. And, and I just thought, Dolores, God, God. bless you, Dolores. Okay. So... Um, this is a part of her little jag, Veronica in the Gathering's little jag about, uh, I'll just do a little short piece about, I had a guy in to clean the carpets once and he told me he was the last of 21. All big families are the same. I meet them sometimes at parties or in pubs. We announce ourselves and then we grieve. Billy in Boston, Jimmy Joe and Joe Berg doing well. The dead first, then the lost, and then the mad. There's always a drunk. There's always someone who has been interfered with as a child. There's always a colossal success with several houses in various countries to which no one is ever invited. <laughs> there is a mysterious sister. These are just 
trends, of course, and like trends, they shift because our families contain everything and late at night, everything makes sense. We pity our mothers, what they had to put up with in bed or in the kitchen, and we hate them or we worship them, but we always cry for them. At least I do, the imponderable pain of my mother against which I have hardened my heart. Just one glass over the odds and I will thump the table like the rest of them and howl for her too. This is what, over the years, my mother has made. One, cups of tea. My mother has wet in her lifetime many thousands of pots of tea. She never made anything else, really. And we always fought over it. Midge liked hers stewed, earnest, weak. Mossy liked to wave the pot around at us. But it was Ita who splashed me once, swinging it around in an arc. I can still see the dirty ribbon of water looping towards me, the line of pain across my midriff, and how cold the cotton was as I tried to peel it off. Who's for tea? Strange to say, she only made two alcoholics of the actual would-you-ever-try-a variety. But all the Hegartys are thirsty. All the Hegartys would kill for a decent cup of tea. Wow, yes. I mean... That's from the, the toilet graffiti. My mother made me a homosexual. If I gave her the wool, would she make me Maybe one, one too? Maybe one too, yes. Yeah. Tea. And that it is about in. tea. But she also, tea. when you say yeah. she made nothing but tea, that character, I mean, that really got me thinking. Again, all this festival, our conversations are looping together. The conversation yesterday about angry, the generation of angry mothers who are insufficiently occupied. This woman is other than that. Yeah. I mean, I do understand that. We were talking about thoroughly mothers in the 70s who should have gone to college and got mm. jobs and mm. done things. Instead, they were stuck wiping children's noses and, and, and doing uh, boiled eggs for a tea. But um, this woman is other than that. She, I, I just thought, you know, there was a woman beside us who had seven boys and a daughter. And, she, and at every Monday morning at eight o'clock, all 49 shirts, if I have my multiplication right, would be out on the line. She had her washing all done before 10 a.m. on a Monday. And she was amazing and she was lovely and she was cheerful and she was smart and she had a part-time job and she kept everything going. And I thought if I had eight children, I wouldn't be like that. I would be completely knocked out by it. Mm. And I did know women who were completely knocked out by it, who were on several types of tablet. For and mysterious, mysterious for ailments. For mysterious ailments, as Father Ted said, the kind of ailments to which middle-aged women are prone, and that's a lot of mysterious ailments. <laughs> well, there's that lovely, lovely line at the beginning of The Green Road when the little girl is being sent to the cousin or the uncle who's the, um, the village... Oh, the ph pharmacist. Pharmacist. And oh, she yeah. has to get some cream for some hideous, uh, she puts it, some hideous ailment of her grandmother's. Uh, but the mother needs pills as well. There's a sense of the, the yes. tension of the village, the female tension being fed from the pharmacy yes. uh, as much as by the church. Slightly, yeah, I mean, the gathering is slightly different to that, mm. that, that, mm. that, that tale of, uh, uh, of pre-feminist woe, you might call yeah. it. So it's like a previous generation again to what you, you had been talking about here. Um, well, with the gathering, it's more and a it's sense of... it's the daughter who's really angry. She's really mm. angry. She's angry at, at, at what happened. And she's angry at her mother's absence, most overwhelmingly about absence. Did you find... I mean, I know it's a, very, it's a common thing to happen, but did you find that becoming a mother yourself made you reassess your own mother's Completely. And experience? And continuously, even now, I'm thinking, oh, yeah, I must have been an awful baggage, really. Um, well, because now you have daughters of your own. You, yes, yeah. yes, yes. I was so confrontational. I was so non-compliant and I was so shouty. It must have been just a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, it, and, and, and there are two people involved in a relationship mm. like that. No, no, of course. You know? Of course. But then there's always the retort that I remember my sister bringing out to my mother, which is, well, you made me. Yeah. Um, it's not to which my mother said, well, I only made half of you. <laughs> There's always someone to blame. Smart chick. Mm. Well, it's in a circle. Well, you get involved in this quite narcissistic circle with you and your mother like this, or you and your inner mother, or you, whatever. You get quite involved in that, in that not quite solipsistic, but perhaps close to solipsistic thing. But the thing you, you delineate so brilliantly in The Gathering is the sense of a 
a fault line of motherhood, mother, grandmother, I mean, that it goes, right. that the damage can ricochet down or be passed down. Um, yes. Or, actually, or turned aside eventually. Actually, Veronica stays up all night, rages and fumes and thinks and rages and types, perhaps, you know, mm. and, and then picks up her children from school and brings them to ballet and, and, and Irish dancing and horse riding. She's classes. the fully, fully functioning Irish tiger mother. She is. Yeah. I mean, she does it all. Yeah. And she does it all, but she has this seething in her life. And people thought she was horrible. And I thought, well, she didn't, even, she didn't murder anyone. She picks up her children from school and brings them to ballet. Yes, yes she functions. She's nice to them. Yeah. I mean, we go to Ireland every, we've been going to Ireland every year for the last 20 years for the Wexford Opera Festival. I've noticed this enormous change yes. in the last 20 years. Um, and, well, we've all noticed it from over here, never mind going over there. And it's always seemed to me that Ireland is basically a, a matriarchy which has finally thrown off some shackles. Is that... Would Interesting line to take. Yes, yeah, that's the, the, there is a deep matriarchal history to it, mm. all right. Um, and but the, the suppose... big changes in the 20th, late 20th century were powered by women. I mean, beginning with Mary Robinson and uh, on, Well, or... we did symbolic women. Mary Robinson was only a symbol, but like the Virgin <laughs> Mary, and so was Mary McAleese, who followed her, was another symbol. So, so we did very, a really hot line in symbolic women. They were terrific women. But they had no actual power. No power, okay. So, uh, yeah, I mean, there's much to be discussed in terms of different styles of masculinity um, in, in post-colonial or colonial societies. I mean, we're not Australians. No, but you have... Uh, Irishmen are, 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 are classically very nice. Yes, yes, but you are a country, I mean, it seems to us you're a country that has been, was for a long time colonised by... Yes, uh, and Catholic, we are quite The Catholic Church, and you, yes. you have... Yes, okay, Clearly. so we're like Southern Europeans, it's a mm. Catholic thing, we're the Marianology. The rise, yeah, sorry, I have to go into the zone here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, the rise of Marianology since uh, after the famine, yes, it was all very, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, lots of things, bad things are said about the Catholic Church, but, they, but, but, but church, churches of that style tell women that they're important. Yeah. Um, and so there was this residual sense in, in Irish society that the mammy was important. And they, they believed it for a very long time. Mm. <laughs> they don't really believe it now. No, but there's a sense uh, in the character of the grandmother in, in Ada, yeah. for instance, that, that in a way, sometimes the bad things that the Catholic Church got away with were being enabled by a, a sort of pact with the women, that the women the matriarchs or the, the women who have been given this slightly bogus symbolic power yes. and significance. Um, Ada comes from a generation in the 1920s which was much more uh, free-thinking or free-wheeling. Mm. Ireland closed down with independence and the, and the church became much more powerful yeah. in those years. The church was invited in. Yeah, so Ada belongs to the Ireland of James Joyce. Right. And that, Where women had went. a voice. Where women actually did have a voice, and they had a voice in, in independence, and they had a voice in 1916, and then it all closed down, and respectability became key. And when money comes in, and everyone wants to become respectable, then women are the icons of respectability, and so it really hits them hardest, I think, one way mm. or the other. And the mothers have to carry carry the burden. And, and and the mothers were literally sent back into the home, a little like what happened in England after the war, yeah, the Second 1950s. World War and they were sent back into the home, and they were sent back in to be lovely, and their loveliness was necessary. And it was necessary to the national psyche that the women should be lovely. And it was so kept afloat on Valium and diet pills. Yeah, if I ever see nationalism, which is now resurgent, and you see what happens around nationalism to the women, and the women are always, look at those Republican chicks, okay? How they dress mm. in America. And you can see these values endlessly, endlessly being recycled and, that, and, and women somehow being obliged into, into this role time and time again. But do you feel Ireland now is a step ahead of the rest of us in that they, they, they've done, you've done your nationalism and now you're... Yeah, we had our nationalism, maybe that's okay. And there wasn't a swing to the right after 2008, after the collapse. So right. maybe we will re remain a little island, a little haven over there of, I don't... Yeah. Of matriarchy. Right thinking matriarchy. I don't think so. You haven't got a female t-shirt yet, so... Um. Uh, no. No. Right. No, but it's really interesting to see how things are going and, and how looking at through the lens of gender can kind of tilt it one way or the other. Give us another mother. Uh, yeah, another mother. Uh, oh yeah, here's another mother, another crying mother. 
poor, 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 that poor woman cries all the time. Well, she this, has, the mother, she has good reason to cry. Yeah. <laughs> so do we all. You say that with a terrible glee. Do you enjoy punishing <laughs> these poor women? Well, no, things happen. Um, okay, sorry, I'm just going to... Uh, Again, you're going to the bit I'd already folded down. Yes, is it? it is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, okay, so uh, Dan, who is the golden son in the Green Road, has, uh, the Pope came in 1979, and Dan, who doesn't know yet that he's gay, has decided that he's going to be a priest. Uh, common enough. Little <laughs> first, <swear>. first response. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the last vocations in Ireland. Um, and he's making the announcement, this is seen through Hannah, Hannah is 12, and she's seeing things through her eyes of a 12-year-old Irish girl on the west of Ireland. Dan said, I've been speaking a... Oh, yeah, okay, sorry. He made the announcement about the priesthood at Sunday dinner, which the Madigans always did with a tablecloth and proper napkins, no matter what. On that Sunday, which was Palm Sunday, they had... Bacon and cabbage with white sauce and carrots, green, white, and orange like the Irish flag. There's a little glass of parsley sitting on the tablecloth and the shadow of the water trembled in the sunshine. Their father folded his large hands and said grace, after which there was silence, apart from the general sound of chewing, that is, and their father clearing his throat as he tended to do every minute or so. <coughs> The parents sat at either end of the table, the children along the sides. Girls facing the window, boys facing the room, Constance and Hannah, Emmett and Dan. There was a fire in the grate and the sun also shone now and then, so they were as warm as winter and as warm as summer for five minutes at a time. They were twice as warm. Dan said, I've been speaking again with Father Fall. It was April. A dappled kind of day. The clean light caught the drops on the windowpane in all their multiplicity, while outside a thousand baby leaves unfurled against branches black with rain. Inside, their mother had a tissue trapped in the palm of her hand. She lifted against her forehead. Oh no, she said, turning away, and her mouth sagged open so you could see the carrots. <laughs> he says, I must ask you to think again that it, it's hard for a man who doesn't have his family behind him. It's a big decision I'm making. He, he says, I must ask you, I must plead with you not to spoil it with your own feelings and concerns. Dan spoke as though they were in private, or he spoke as though they were in a great hall, but it was a family meal, which was not the same as either of these things. You could see their mother had an impulse to rise from the table, but couldn't allow herself to flee. He says, I'm to ask your forgiveness for the life you'd hoped for me and the grandchildren you will not have. Emmett snorted into his dinner. Dan pressed his hands down on the tablecloth before swiping at his brother fast and hard. Their mother blanked for the blow like a horse jumping a ditch. But Emmett ducked, and after a long second, she landed on the other side. She put her head down as though to gather speed. A moan came out of her, small and unformed. The sound of it seemed to please as well as surprise her, so she tried again. This next moan started soft and went long, and there was a kind of speaking to its last rise and fall. Oh, God, she said. She threw her head back and blinked at the ceiling once, twice. Oh, dear God. The tears started to run, one on top of the last, down to her hairline. One, two, three, four. She stayed like that for a moment while the children watched and pretended not to be watching and her husband cleared his throat into the silence. <coughs> their mother lifted her hands and shook them free of her sleeves. She wiped her wet temples with the heels of her hands and used her delicate crooked fingers to fix the back of her hair, which she always wore in a chignon. Then she sat up again and looked very carefully at nothing. She picked up a fork and stuck it into a piece of bacon and she brought it to her mouth, but the touch of the meat to her tongue undid her. The fork swung back down towards her plate and the bacon fell. Her mouth made that wailing shape, touching in the middle and open at the sides, what Dan called her wide mouth frog look. Then she took a sharp inhale and went, ah, 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 
it seemed to Hannah her mother might stop eating, or if she was that hungry, she might take her plate and go into another room in order to cry. But this did not occur to her mother clearly, and she sat there eating and crying at the same time. Much crying, little eating. There was more work with the tissue, which was now in shreds. It was awful. The pain was awful. Her mother juddering and sputtering with the carrots falling from her mouth in little lumps and piles. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. So she's a business now. She is a business. Yeah, she's a quite, quite manipulative. Yes. Yeah, and she doesn't even know it. And the kids are all part of her personal thing. And it takes them a long, long time to become themselves and to, and to escape this amazing orbit. Well, and Dan goes to America. He um, does, yeah. Which, which in, goes to the heart of what to a lot of us looks like the, the, the crux of the Irish family problem, which is that the children often have to leave Ireland entirely. And how do the mammies cope when they're... Yeah, well, the mammies, oh. when, when Dan leaves for New York and he arrives at the beginning of the uh, AIDS epidemic in New York, um, and it is so different from the west of Ireland. I thought this was a very good way of showing how what you think, I'm going to be, I'm going to go, I'm go and it's going to be and how amazingly unimaginable the future can be to you. Mm. So Dan goes, walks in straight in, straight into this unimaginable future. And because of emigration, Irish children didn't have to labor their poor mothers with the truth of anything. <laughs> so Dan well, they could maintain the official fiction yeah, at home. Yeah, he comes home and she says, any sign of a girlfriend? And that goes on for 20 years and everyone's happy. And so emigration meant that you could morally, you could escape the moral claustrophobia of Catholic Ireland and Catholic Ireland could, could weep for you and you could weep for Catholic Ireland and it would just all go on and on. Until one of your truth-telling siblings undid the, the uh, illusion. Yes, I suppose. But it changed. I mean, mm. it did change. Uh, yeah. In a sense, though, do you think the changes that have happened recently have been a breaking down of that, that the truth is being a generation of women is has grown up now, which isn't going to maintain that fiction anymore. And that, well, I mean, the, the, the idea, you know, the idea that my mother certainly had, that the, the gutter was just available. Mm. So then if you did something wrong, it was going to be terrible. The results, the consequences were unforeseeably awful. So and if, you got if you got pregnant, for example, mm. there was, she just couldn't, that would just be utterly... Devastating. It was full of dread, as a population full of dread, with it beaten into them by the Catholic Church, mm -hmm. that, they, that there was much to dread. And I asked her about it recently, and she said, well, hell, you know, that was, what, that was a worry. <laughs> and my daughter was asking me, like, why did people do this? And I said, well, well if, if you, if, why did they not use contraception, says my 18-year-old uh, daughter. And I said, well, there wasn't any. But you could get it if you, you know, you could get it. Or you could use the Billings method, although my mother did point, or we were very confusingly called the rhythm method, it sounded like salsa dancing. <laughs> uh, uh, and my mother pointed out two children, she's very, she very frank in her own way, and said, conceived during the safe period. <laughs> Let that be a warning to you, my That God. child. And that was also confusing because a safe period was also, uh, what, what, what? <laughs> So she taught us all about contraception before she ever taught us about sex. In fact, that was how it worked. You're told how not to do it yes. and how to stay safe without being told what the necessary thing you were staying safe and, from. And never a mention of pleasure, presumably. No, she wasn't anti-sex, no. But there was no mention of pleasure. Right. But there was, there was no sense that it was the worst thing that could ever happen to you. And, and you do read a lot of books, and they're not all by Catholics or by women. And they, the premise is that sex is literally the worst thing that anything that can happen. It's always awful. It's well, it's often very badly done. Well, I mean, not the writing, done. I mean the sex. So, I mean, yeah, no, so it's badly ghastly. Taught, badly it's all done. awful. Mm. And, and, and you kind of close the book saying, well, I wouldn't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. And were you, did your mother hand you over to nuns? Were you taught by nuns? I was, yeah, but they weren't a, a, a very posh. English lady said, and were they very sadistic? She said. <laughs> <laughs> and I she said, Looking her lips. Uh, and were they terribly sadistic? She said. And I said, no, not really. 
They were the, they, you know, there was Sister Maura and there was this nun and that nun and, and they were different and they were just themselves. Well, they clearly taught you very well. They were um, spirited. The Louise mm, nuns had a, mm. liked a spirited girl. Right. Yes. And didn't, they didn't crush you down? They, you were, Sister Kathleen yeah. was a bit of a monster. Yeah, she crushed them down. But then, you know, one way or the other, and they were quite an academic order of nuns. Or, yeah. And was it a bookish household you grew up in? Uh, yes, it was. I mean, Ireland does have a famously high, I mean, much better literacy standard oh, no, than I we think do. That's actually, well, yeah, I think actually mm. New Zealand wins, you know, uh, uh, and there are... Yeah. And Australia. I mean, that's the dark secret of Australia, that yeah. actually they buy more books than the Germans. Yeah, we're um, very good but, at advertising ourselves as literary, mm. but I don't think it actually, the figures... Uh, but out. you grew up in a house full of books. I did, yes. So. It was, well, not full of books, full of some bad Catholic literature as well, Georges Simenon. <laughs> Uh, G.K. Chesterfield. Oh, the, yeah, yeah. Chesterton. Chesterton, yes. Somerset, Mom. He was a Catholic, no? Yes, twisted. Yeah, Graham yeah, Green. He was a Catholic. Why don't you write How like about Graham the Irish King? writers, though? Yeah, Frank O'Connor all the time. Lots of Frank O'Connor, Liam O'Flaherty, Walter Mackin. And these, these figures would be known. So Walter Mackin, who's not a well-known figure to you, mm. perhaps, but he was banned under the censorship board. So that was quite interesting. The book was banned. Rain and the wind. So banned by the church? Was the censorship no, board? No, by the censorship no. board, which was established uh, by a government board. Right. But, uh, but, but under the, under the uh, Archbishop uh, McQuaid uh, brought out, set everything back by 10 years and banned McGahern and did all kinds of badness, banned Edna O'Brien, but banned Walter Mackin. And Walter Mackin was known to go to Mass every morning at half eight in Fibsburg Church, which was my mother's local church. So she would have seen him at Mass, so there was this band, handsome man, penitent. <laughs> so there was a romance to the banning. So, well, at church at half eight, wouldn't you go yourself just to see? <laughs> no, yeah. And how about Edna O'Brien? So were her books, would your mother never have let her books in the house? Oh, no, she read everything and, 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 and enjoyed everything. Oh, yeah. she enjoyed it? She, yeah. Well, she said, I'm married. I have five children. I can read what I like. And we'd say, oh, oh mother. And she'd say, <laughs> I can read what I like. But her mother had read Ulysses, for example, and read what she liked, you know. But then her mother, as we said earlier, was of that generation where women were freer. Yeah, she actually went, to, went to university and went, graduated in 1917 or something like that. So, um, so and was much freer. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, but it was kept under the covers. That was the other thing. My granny read Ulysses and it was under the Eiderdown. <laughs> and then I bought Ulysses when I was 14 and very pretentious and sad. <laughs> <laughs> I was in many ways like a teenage boy. <laughs> Too clever, you know. And... Uh, it was taken from me at 14. Advice was sought. Who took it from you? The whole family. I was the youngest. <laughs> Snatched from your hand. She's reading Ulysses. I was, uh, my elder sister, who was in charge of everything, gave me Dubliners and, you know. Oh, well, that's, that's allowed, yeah. That was allowed. Yeah. It was the most boring book I'd ever read. And meanwhile, Ulysses was taken from me on the advice of my English teacher and put in the attic for when I was 18. <sighs> so, yeah, it's not just a bookish house, it's a mad house when mm. it comes to books. You know, that they were, they were astonishingly talismanic for an Irish population who is constantly burdened by the shame of being lazy, dirty, stupid and drunk. And yet we had these amazing writers. And so a lot of our sense of nobility and interest and were these writers who were themselves quite lazy, dirty and drunk. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but surely I mean, there's nothing I mean, more... Ulysses was the dirtiest book in the world. Mm. And but... yet he was the greatest writer in the world. So it, the ironies were kept really in motion very strangely. And the greatest Irish writer. I mean, so and, there's and the, the, the Irishness the great, of it. And the Irishness. And so what do you do with all this? It's like a grenade <laughs> and for the proto Put it up in the attic you know and for the proto novelist in the family nothing more guaranteed to whet your appetite than to take the book away yeah and say you can't have it yeah I, like... I feel like doing the same with my children have your phone have your phone <laughs> <laughs> we're just going to grab all educational materials away from you put them on top of the dresser with the chocolates you're yeah, saving exactly for later. exactly with the fruit now do you see <laughs> these two novels you didn't write them to go together, or did you? Are they uh, part of a, do you see them as a progression? Uh, well, you know, people 
talk about families and do your do your do your siblings care and all the and does your mother mind and all that kind of thing. My father never read my books, but he did read my punctuation. He was worried about my use of the semicolon, quite rightly. Yeah. And I've had, uh, but I think that was a kind of tenderness on his part as well. He may have read them, but he wasn't going to burden me mm -hmm. with a judgment or anything. So it was quite light in terms of authority. What was the question? Whether they pair, whether you see them as part of a progression, are you planning? Yeah, you uh, kind of work on other bases. I mean, there was a book. I mean, the Forgotten Worlds, which Forgotten I love. The Forgotten Worlds was in the middle, and I was kind of interested. You're interested in one point of view and how people, mm. how the character gets out of that point of view. And in this book, I was splitting to four points of view, really radically, and giving each of these characters their full go. So we really understood them by the time they met in the second half of the book. Right. That the reader would know more about them than they knew about each other. Which, and I mean, family we don't know about. We don't know about our siblings. Because our siblings don't tell us everything. There's very good reasons for all of that. <laughs> and then in, 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 in The Gathering, the, the structure is, is bolder still in a way, because it's, it's very, very ambivalent. So you have these... The, the figure of Ada, who seems so benign, and yeah. then suddenly she doesn't seem so benign when we view her from a later perspective. Yes. Um, it's almost about, it seems to me the gathering is almost about the unknowability of your own family. That you, only yeah. have, you end up with a string of versions, and there's a deep trauma in the heart of it. Yes, yeah. Um, well, I wrote the gathering, I don't even know, I knew what it was about, more or less, but it was a very... Um, I'm not very good at describing it particularly. I can do a bit of patter about the family or whatever. I'm not very good at describing. It just, it just, I mean, it was 2004. I had small children. I locked myself away in this very small space mm. and really sink into this terrible kind of universe, you know, for a while and then close the door and start smiling again. Or not, yeah, usually. But do you have that rightly thing that actually when you're in a happy place, because you've got lovely children and so on, that you feel better able to face the darkness, because your earlier yeah. novels were quite comic. And yes, Evelyn Waugh. They still are funny, obviously, as we heard in those extracts, but they're, they're going into a dark, yeah. darker corner. Yeah, corners. and I didn't care. I mm. don't know why I didn't care. Mm. I had small children, I cared about them, but I didn't really care about the book so much anymore. As in, I, I thought, fuck it, I can write what I like in one, in one yeah. way. Yeah. But they kind of, the children thing doesn't always work out. You know, Evelyn Waugh could not write if his children were in the same wing of the house. <laughs> you have to move to a bigger house. <laughs> <laughs> but even there, the idea of their presence was disturbing to him. Mm. Ah. So where are you going next? There is another book. Yeah, there's, there's another, and, there's another yeah, mother, There is I another hope. mother. Yeah. And, um, and I'm, I, I hope, I, I mean, we all have one. I just, sometimes it feels like the Irish have mothers for everyone. <laughs> that we do it, we do it for, for, for Europe, really. Um, and even sometimes America, we have our mothers. Uh, but yeah, the next book, which is, it's sort of, I can see it, it's sort of, I can see it, is, uh, you know, you're halfway in, you say, oh, fuck, here I am again, I'm doing this again. But it is a mother seen from a daughter's point of view, and the mother is an actress. And again, The Gathering was a particular class. The Green Road was a more moneyed, um, mm -hmm. towny, uh, maybe in the west of Ireland, right. pharmacist, professional class, I suppose. And so this is a different sort of non-class again, more bohemian class okay. again. And is this a Dublin novel? Um, yeah, Dublin, a bit of London, a bit of New York. Okay, uh, international yeah, bohemian. In, right. in, international bohemian. The, the, the narrator is in Bray, County Wicklow, which is the town I left about four years ago. And so, you know, you have a narrator and it's a bit kind of like a throw of, your, of yourself. So she's, she's looking, this is just a sad bit. I think a lot of my writing about mothers is about loss one way or the other. You can sometimes feel the loss of a mother when they're actually sitting in front of you. I'm waiting. You're going to give us a sneak peek. But uh, this is, uh, you know, uh, okay. It's just a little, and it's kind of a much gentler sort of tone and less kind of, I don't know, bumptious than my, my usual sort of uh, prancing about. So <laughs> when, I, when I came home to Bray, I decided to take a ring of my mother's, she's long dead, the, the mother, a ring of my mother's down to the jewellers, something I'd been putting off for years. Maybe I'd imagined my fingers would change again, that they would become once more slender and young. But I gave in shortly after my trip to Herne Hill to time's obdurate thickening. 
and I decided to get the thing sized up once and for all. She said the ring was an emerald, but I remember it as a black stone, art deco and lovely, the square, a square stone set in a baguette, in, with three baguette cut diamonds down either side. I used to think it was silver, but it is more likely platinum. She wore it constantly, panicked when it was gone, twisted it round and round the ring finger of her right hand. I could see it in my mind's eye, but I could not picture where the thing was now. It was not in the obvious places, in the bedside locker, in the jewellery case I keep in the chest of drawers. It wasn't in the box at the back of the sideboard or among the bags of stuff in the big suitcase under the stairs. I went into my son's old room and checked his drawers for no possible reason, finding along the way a single balled-up football sock many years unwashed, three derelict phones, a favourite old T-shirt that I put to my cheek for a moment so I could warm the cloth and remember him on the inside of it, a plastic axe. I took a photo and sent it with the word bin. Axe, he texted back. My daughter's room was pristine. I always feel a little guilty in there as though I might be found out. Were you in my room? I searched it silently and with precision, convincing myself as I went that she had taken the ring. Of course she had. The same way she used to take my nail scissors or tape measure or hall door key. Actually, both of them were addicted as children to things that were vital and very small. It was a spark of fury as I remembered all this. A single shoelace from their father's dress shoes the necessary cable, the gizmo that plugged into the gadget. I'm just, she would say, I'm just going to and off on some dreamy mission to disaster. I used to think it was the catastrophe they wanted, that ruckus when you try to leave the house and can't, much ransacking later, you discover some child has undone the path that leads to the front door. But maybe they just wanted to keep us at home, I thought now, as I opened Pamela's wardrobe scooped a hand uselessly into one after another of her coat pockets, all empty, except for a camera card I take out and put safely on a sh shelf, wondering what pictures it contains. I have a little office space in the attic loft with a velux window and a view of sky and passing birds, but it gets so warm up there under the roof and there are too many papers, so sometimes I sneak in here to work instead. It feels slightly criminal. Pamela is the most ordered room in the house, the cool north-facing light makes my typing proceed in a more orderly way. I like to think of her growing up in here with infinite slowness, filling the length of the bed. There must have been a day when she stopped taking my stuff, some ordinary Sunday when she used my eye pencil and put it back in my makeup bag, when she was out of the trance of childhood and her adult self came good. My beautiful girl, she had not taken the ring because this is something she would never do. Nice as it was to sit in her bed and think about how well she turned out and then to text her, yibble, bib. <laughs> I knew it would bring me no further on. Where grandmother's ring, eye roll emoji. Nor did I know where she was or in what, what time zone. You asleep? Heart emoji, heart emoji. The children room's finished. I decided, to go to the, I decided to go through the house in an orderly fashion, closing each door when it was done, but it was impossible to stay in one place, seized and distracted as I was by sudden convictions. It must be here, it must be here. Some places were rifled many times over, not because the ring was there, but because it clearly and unbelievably was not there. The bedside locker for the fifth time, all the underwear taken out of the underwear drawer, it was not in the sideboard, it was not in a forgotten china cup, it was not in that damn suitcase under the stairs. I had hidden it. I had lost my mother's ring by making sure I would never lose my mother's ring. And I was so angry now, not at the lost ring, but at my own stupidity, the fact that I was losing my marbles along with everything else. And suddenly I was raging against all the losses I had ever suffered or endured and all the losses lurking up ahead. I emptied out a pair of boots from the bottom of my wardrobe, felt desperately along the tops of the books on the shelves. I pulled some out and scattered my life all over the floor. It was gone. Up in our bedroom, I sat on the edge of the bed and put my head in my hands. If I could just stop looking, I knew I might remember where it was. You must let the thing go in order to find it. 
first you must mourn. But I didn't feel like mourning. I felt like kicking something. I decided to give up for a while to go down and make a cup of tea. On the way out of the room, I gave the bag on top of the wardrobe a resentful poke with a clenched wire clothes hanger. And when it fell into my arms, there was an old tin inside it. And inside the tin, I found four safety pins. <laughs> I shouted your name, but you weren't yet home. So I left the house, shoving the front door key beneath the rock before I closed the small front gate and I walked down the road towards the prom. I took nothing with me. This is the way I like to walk with no phone, no keys, no bag, no money. I love the air in my empty pockets and the wind along my back. I would wear no socks, but I have a rule about such things. It's important to be fully dressed when you are out in the world. Not that I'd ever forget, but I have a dangerous dream of divesting one piece of clothing after another as I cross the stony beach and meet the waves. This is not a suicide, it is a swim. I must make that much clear. Even so, if you could put a dream into a pill. This is the tablet I would take in my last days, one that as you sucked released a sense of the sea. We love living in Bray, a Victorian resort with a permanent off-season charm. There are amusements and a bandstand, seagulls looking for dropped ice cream. The prom attracts off-season people. Those who work odd hours are not at all and there is something desperate and joyous about us all leaning into the wind. I reached the long railing of the prom and turned towards Bray Head, a worried-looking hill at the south end of the beach. This is a morning town facing east, and the headland spends much of the day humped over its own shadow. Today was no different. The brow of the head was furrowed, the rocks a velvet brown as though considering moss. A squall was coming in. I could see the rain in a vertical fog shift towards the shore. Close to, the sea was already choppy, the waves blurred over by flying points of spray. Under this scrim, the water was sometimes jade, sometimes the colour of the dark stone on my mother's ring. But exactly, the sea was the colour of a black emerald. It held the light so deep in itself. And this flat fact flooded me with the memory of the days she spent dying when my mother was so essentially herself, I could not consider turning to leave the room. I realized that I was gripping the top of the railing. This seemed to be a childish thing to be doing at my age. It was all such a long time ago. And of course, my mother was not there in the sea. She had not comforted me. There was no message for me in the color of the waves. But I had, as I turned for home, a great sense of the world's generosity even though it was just my own foolishness in another guise, even though the sea was just the sea, which was quite enough, really. Certainly enough to be getting on with, I thought, as I lifted my face to meet the rain. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. You heard it here, a UK premiere. It of is the a next UK premiere. That was yes. such a treat. I read Thank it in Bray so last week, so it's about the second time I've read it. You've read it on your, do on your doorstep. I, I read it on the doorstep, yeah. Wonderful. And then, yeah. I think this is the perfect opportunity to throw, throw you to the lions of the Centendelian audience. Um, is there any way we can turn the house lights, tweak the lights, Dave, so that we can see and can see who she's talking to? Or you could talk from the dark. Yeah, anything you like to ask, so long as it's nice, you know? And do we have a roving mic? So it's all about loss and retrieval, really. It is, the it is. But I loved, I loved the structure of that passage and the way you go from the specificity of not being able to find the ring to the much deeper ache of... Yeah, well, it's well, something we all do, isn't it? Mm. Can't find the bloody thing. Yeah, yeah. And then it's all your own fault. I mean, it switches around and you just... <sighs> Yeah, oh yeah, no, the husband says it's in the cutlery drawer. No, he says not the, it's not in the cutlery drawer, it's in the other drawer. <laughs> the useful drawer. No, oh. it's just because, of course, you're supposed to know what the other drawer is. And she says, well, if I said that to you, we go the other way home. <laughs> so I, do, anyway. we now, we, do we now have a roving mic? No? I think the church has a good enough acoustic it's fine. that no, we... No, I was expecting... So please put up your hand if you have a question for Anne. 
Zach I has can't believe there are no questions in this room. There we go. The, the, the gentleman here first, I think was... Underhand. Uh, yeah, about me. What about the experience of daughter? Yeah, no, she would have a lot to say. <laughs> she seems generally of the opinion that it's a bit of a bore, but all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, she'd have plenty to tell you. God knows. We're not letting her out. Moving, swi <laughs> moving swiftly on. <laughs> but that was the other thing is, if you write books like this, mm. I remember there was only one person who said this to me, and I was really, truly sh shocked. It was an Irish academic who was working in Oxford, and therefore, I, I suppose, quite successful in her field. And she said, what do your children say? I mean, I've heard people say, what does your mother say a few times, but I'd never heard someone say, what do you, how could you write that so that you're, what would your children say? Uh, um, and I thought that was astonishing. And they don't say anything much. My, my, I have a great picture of my son reading The Green Road like this. <laughs> and they both said, decided that the second chapter, I think it was my daughter said, it's too gay, mother, even for me. <laughs> because they're experts, you know, in everything. So, so, so you're just really trotting along after their omniscience, you know. Um, and, and so this self-confidence that they know a lot more about everything than you do uh, protects them, I are, are they asking to read the proofs yet, to, to correct if them? If they you? asked me to read, I would be delighted. If I put it on their phone, they might. Okay. <laughs> we now have a roving mic. So there was a question over here, I think. Could you wait, wait for the mic to reach you? That way the... You end up on the podcast as well. Please, please hold, hold it to your mouth. Right. I was going to say, uh, what kind of Catholic uh, family was it? Are they like the Arundels, back to Henry VIII, or did they come over at the boat? They came over the yeah. Well, I married an English Catholic, um, so I have thought about it a lot, and it is the, uh, that uh, you know, um, the population of English Catholics is one of the least written stories, and Ireland is always writing stories, but it, it doesn't go, go, go into Kilburn as was. Does and I think that the emigrant, the shame of the emigrant could be turned into yearning nostalgia when the Atlantic was between you. But if you were, if it was just the Irish Sea, um, it was too hard. It was just too hard to turn that into a noble or sweet or melancholy event. It was just, um, and, and so it's, it's quite a neglected, it's quite a neglected story. I think Joe O'Connor writes it a, 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 a bit, yeah. But, but very neglected because not unhappy enough and not happy enough either. You know, it's, it's, um, it's a funny one. It's really in-betweeny. I'm delighted you thought you were the, everyone was Catholic. <laughs> I mean, I, religion is also more or less good at making people feel special. Um, and that can be special in a terrible way, as in you will go to hell, or mm. it can be special in a, you know, an interesting way or a moral way or that it matters somehow. Here's me not being anti-religious, Jesus. 
<laughs> Another question. I hate the Catholic Church. I just want to say that here. <laughs> this church used to be Catholic, of course. I don't. Bear that in mind. I don't mind a bit of spiritual, whatever, and it's lovely, and then the architecture is great, and the music is wonderful, and, you know, but I hate the Catholic Church for the lies and the hypocrisy and the sadism. Anything else? <laughs> <laughs> I think that covers it just about. <laughs> Any more questions? I'm sure there are. Let's jump from here. Now, this is a question um, you'll possibly be relieved to know, not about your own work. Uh, I was very interested to hear you mention Macken and O'Flaherty because I read both of them many years ago. Um, I think probably because. Uh, a couple of Mackins, well, one of Mackins' books, children's books, was made into a film, Flight of the Doves. Yeah. And then there was another one that was made into a children's series. Um, are they still read and revered in Ireland? No, not at all. And I feel I must go back to them. Um, I, the mother is reading Rain on the Wind in the Green Road. Uh, and the picture of uh, 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 the photograph on the front is one that I reclaimed. The internet is marvellous. So that's the, the, the book that's on the floor of her bedroom when she takes to the bed to cry. But Walter Mackin is not known, no. Um, and O'Connor survived. Sean O'Fuelon, who you might also be familiar with, has dropped completely out of fashion. He was just too cosmopolitan and too sophisticated somehow. Liam O'Flaherty is too perhaps invested in peasant simplicity. I don't know. Liam O'Flaherty is a beautiful writer. So, um, yeah. Time for a, a revival. Everyone's too busy reviving the, 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 the under-acknowledged female voices. Well, that's, yeah, about time. And about time. In the middle. I'm going to ask an incredibly boring and prosaic question, but because we've been talking about Irishness and Englishness and stuff, I hate to bring the B word in, but in the sense of Irishness from the point of view of... You're going to say Brexit, are you? The Brexit. Okay. But thinking of the sense of Irishness and Catholicism and identity, I hate that word, you know what I mean. Um, if we have Brexit or what's going on now, from the perspective of Ireland, which I haven't been to for about 20 years, is it going to change the sense of... It's good to it may complete the feeling that Ireland, the, that wonderful feeling that Ireland had in the 70s when they joined the, then the EEC, that they were jumping over Britain and getting better mammies and daddies, you know what I mean? Be better authority. Um, uh, it, I, 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 and so that we styled ourselves as Europeans and I, I would have, you know, seriously encouraged to learn European languages, for example. So it may complete that process, but, you know, Brexit is such a mess. <laughs> I don't know if you've noticed that no, nobody in Ireland knows what to think. Um, I think the confusion is, uh, and, and there's a kind of feeling of waiting to think maybe somebody's going to sort this out somehow, but also a, a feeling that there are so many uh, paradoxical and impossible facts about the border and, nor and with Northern Ireland. Um, and on that, that, that whatever happens in the next year or two is going to be unstable and somehow temporary. Um, so that it's going to be a step towards something else and whether that is in the long, long term a step towards what used to be called a united Ireland or uh, whether the Brexiteers will shift in some way and something else will happen. <coughs> very much unknown at the moment. Arlene Foster might implode. Yeah, yeah well, that, well, the DUP and Arlene Foster, you, you, you have to realise that the power of this small group of Northern Irish Protestants goes back to Gladstone. That they have had, uh, they've had a power of a hung parliament since the early 1900s. That's incredible. Or the late 1800s. And, and so, so that, will, that has become excruciatingly apparent yet again. And so something might shift in that, but I have, it's beyond my ken as to what's going to happen. And, uh, you know, I, you kind of, I don't go into the details because, because it's, it's such a goon show <laughs> with the Tories and you just don't know what the hell is going on. 
I'm not sure they do either. We have, yeah. we have another question, Lady in Green, I think, behind. Yes, I, uh, I tend to grow a novel from the inside and I tend not to know where I'm going when I start out. And I tend to more doodle and improvise than start anything. I never start a novel. So are you a splurger, not a planner? No, I'm a grower. I grow like mushrooms in the dark. In both directions at once. I, I grow and I plan and then I grow some more and I, I plan it some more, but I'm writing it from the inside out. And then there comes a kind of structural moment maybe a year into the writing and I say, ah, this is what it's about and this is how I'm going to have to structure it. And after that, things become slightly clearer. But that, that first year is improvisatory in some way. So it's great, actually, because you're not actually writing the book. You're just sort of writing. You're doodling. Yeah. yeah, you're doodling. You're just making it or you're just mining the idea one way or the other and rebalancing things and saying, and then, at, and then you'll see what it requires and you'll, there's also what I call the three-act structure of doom, which I look at, which is a thing that goes like that. Midpoint. <laughs> Surprise or reversal, you know, and yeah, I look yeah. at that because mm. it, it, the Hollywood structure, which is the Shakespearean structure, is somehow very, very much in our, in our deep in our, in our brains. So I respect all of that. We have time for one last question. Stunned silence. There's one over there. There we go. Do you have a good editor and a good relationship with the editor? I tend to deliver when the book is, is very much done. Um, and because of my unusual structuring, or it, it seems unusual, although it has that deep <laughs> three-act structure of doom, um, uh, it's hard to get into a book to undo what I've done one way or the other, so it's hard to pull, pull, the, pull the thread. Um, and I have been lightly edited over the years. Um, some people are much more sherry about their work and they'll get many mm. people to read it, and I'm gradually opening up to that. But I tend to deliver with a thunk. <laughs> <laughs> Here it is. Oh, they better be grateful. Do you, are you, are you, do you deliver in, in Dublin or in London or in New York? I mean, I know some authors now are being published in New York before they're being published here. Tried, we tried last time out to do what's called a global rollout on the Green Road. So that, you know, you do all your stuff online, that's all global, and you can do all your fuss and footer online, and that's, that's done. You don't have to do it twice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I mean, Patrick, you go everywhere in, in the UK. Well, I'm just desperate, yeah. No, <laughs> but I mean, I don't tour in the UK, but mm. I mean, the America might give me a tour, but the UK isn't really a toury place for me, but right. you know, your energy is there. Too. Well, that's different. Yeah. And it's been an absolute treat. Isn't Patrick the best, by the way? No, no, no. Isn't Patrick the best? No, this is so not well, about I, me. I, I, <laughs> isn't he such a charming host? And doesn't he... Make it all no, the same. No, no, Anna's the best, and um, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's fine. He's the reason um, everybody comes, you know. Not are, this lovely church, no, shush, we do shush, find it's my Be now, woman. Yeah. We he are says you have to come, you should see it, it's lovely. <laughs> And it is. Okay, you can send some Irish writers over for okay. next year. Now we've established there's a cheap flight to Newquay. Fantastic. Please put your hands together for the wonderful Anne Enright. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.